Provincial police arrived at dawn, secured their position, and gave the Mohawk until 8 to clear out. But the natives stood their ground. The battle through the barricade started just before 9 o'clock. On one side, heavily armed provincial police lobbed tear gas and stun grenades. The Mohawks responded with automatic firepower. A 20-minute gun battle ensued. Dozens of rounds of ammunition were shot off, and then the inevitable, someone was hit. A police officer took a bullet in the face, which proved fatal. That seemed to turn the tide. The police who had been advancing until then turned tail and fled, leaving six of their vehicles behind. At one point, there were as many as 12 native barricades in Quebec, but tonight, only one is still standing. It's the one that triggered the whole dispute, the one that Quebec police tried to storm 53 days ago, the one in Oka. Mohawks erected that barricade last March. They were trying to prevent the town from expanding a nine-hole golf course on what they claim is ancestral land. Tonight, the barricade is completely surrounded by the Canadian Army. The soldiers have dug themselves in after a day of high tension and drama. The infantry major in charge made it clear he was heading for the barricades at any cost and that bullets would be met with bullets. As soon as I'm able to move forward, I move forward. Are you moving right through to the barricades? There's a barricade down there? Yes, sir. They continued to advance relentlessly throughout the day, and by evening they were here in the very center of the Ganasatagi encampment. They were at the edge of the sacred Mohawk Cemetery and near the very spot where the Quebec police officer was killed weeks ago. They were also within about a one-minute march from the main Indian barricade. And the soldiers followed the methods they'd followed all along, telling the Mohawks not to shoot first or they would shoot back. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Today's show is 78 Days in the Pines. We talked to two friends who were major figures in what is too often called the Oka Crisis, but was really an assault on Mohawk people at Gunasadalge. With this episode, we are introducing a new format to LTN. We will shift from doing three podcasts per week to one produced program providing a deeper examination on a given topic. My guests today are Gonzaletta Horn and Loren Thompson, who I know as Gunazaraga. Let me start by explaining that the events we are discussing take place in Gunazaraga, a small, quiet, picturesque community on the shores of the Lake of Two Mountains, west of Montreal, where two rivers converge with the St. Lawrence. The Mohawk communities of Gunawage and Aquasasne are also mentioned, and much of the support for Gunazaraga came from those communities. Before I get into it, let me also explain a few things. Throughout this episode, you will hear Gonzaletta and Loran refer to the men. By that, they are referring to the warriors or the warrior society, known in the language as Rodiscarvaget. We discuss more about the warrior societies in episodes 514 and 515 featuring Degorundage. If you want to learn more, you can check those out. Let me explain the lay of the land a little bit before we get into the interview. Gunawage is right on the St. Lawrence River with a major bridge and access to Montreal. Gunazadage is almost due north of Gunawage, not far as a crow flies, but a long drive due to the waterways. A small ferry is the shortest way, but it's still an hour-long trip. Aquasasne is west of Gunawage and is also on the St. Lawrence, but straddles the international border between the United States and Canada. When the media refers to the Oka crisis, what they're referring to is the 78-day siege that begins on July 11, 1990, with a shootout between the Quebec Provincial Police and the Mohawk Warriors. 
The provincial police, known as the SQ, were attempting to remove a blockade manned by Mohawk warriors to prevent the mayor of the municipality of Oga from expanding a golf course onto Mohawk land, which is part of Gunasadage. The blockade had been in place for over a year, and the conflict had been brewing for all that time. Those tensions between the French Canadians, who are the main population of Oka and the region, and the Mohawk people, are historic. And those racial tensions lie at the foundation of this conflict. My first guest addresses some of these issues, so let me go ahead and introduce Gantanetta Horn. Gantanetta is from Gunawage and has been very active in Native struggles for over 60 years. She was in Ganazadage supporting the blockade and would be a part of the men and women holed up in the treatment center throughout the siege. Gantanetta, why don't you give me your thoughts on the racial tensions between the Native and non-Native people of that area? Well, the, the municipality is uh, French, and uh, they have uh, very little to do uh, with the Natives who are right there. And uh, so the, um, there's always been animosity between us and the French, and that goes right back to the very beginning. Our original relationship with them was never very good, and uh, we fought them for a long time, a uh, hundred years. So that was the kind of, um, that's what was going on. There was always that, uh, uh, the, the, that dynamic was always there. But the Mohawks always... I have to say we stayed true to each other. We had our arguments, yes, but we always stayed true to each other and we fought and helped each other throughout. So when this, what came up in uh, 1990, when that happened, well, it didn't take but a few seconds to, uh, to for the Urdiskaragete to rise up and go and help. And they were there within a very short time. And they were fighting for this land that uh, the Oka people wanted, which was um, uh, a golf course. And it's a, there's a golf course that had been there for a while. It's been there since the 50s. And uh, so they wanted to increase the size of the parking lot and probably increase the size of, of, um, of the, golf the, the golf club. Anyway, uh, the people there said, no, you're not going to do that. And it was right, uh, the land they wanted to increase was the cemetery. Our, our cemetery, our native cemetery. They said, no, you're not going to do that. Uh, no. So that led, on, led into the um, SQ coming in and firing, firing at them. Um, and um, it was a big, big, it was a huge uh, attack. And uh, anyway, they came in and they were firing at them. And then uh, there was a big battle there. And um, I, and then the, uh, the SQ uh, backed off because one of their guys was killed. They blamed us for it at first. They said we shot and killed him, but we didn't. That was Marcel LeMay. Um, uh, they will never admit um, who, who shot him. They just, all the guns that they could find around there disappeared. And all the uh, trees that had been fired at uh, were taken down. So, you know, they were trying to make sure that None of their people ever got blamed for that, but it wasn't us. That's for sure. Let's let's back up a little bit because um, I know once uh, the municipality and the mayor of Oka was uh, was trying to uh, expand this golf course, um, th this conflict um, 
uh, kind of raged on for quite some time. And if you can back up, uh, uh, give a sense for, for how our people responded, because I know they, they called the area the Pines, and you talked about them taking the trees down to hide the evidence of their gunshots. But um, to the best that you can, explain how long there had been the standoff before the SQ actually came in the way they did. Well, from what from the times that I went there and was involved with some of the meetings, I would say it was myself. I was involved with it maybe about a year. But I never expected that they would uh, charge in the way they did. I, that Nobody expected that. We just weren't going to give in. And uh, that was the stand that was being taken by everybody. And that's why the, our people were there. They said, no, we're not moving. We're not leaving. We're staying. But the uh, mayor of Oka wanted to develop his municipality because, uh, you know, fancy houses were being put up and estates and so on. So he wanted a big, nice, big, uh, uh, you know, nice, big uh, resort type of uh, area there so that they could uh, play golf and go sailing and that kind of stuff. And uh, so this is this was we saw that they wanted to do that over a long period of time. But I'll tell you something else. In uh, the 1950s, I think it was 1959, was the first time they put up that that uh, golf uh, the the golf club. And I remember we protested then in 1959. And I remember helping to organize a jamboree. And we had people from here, from Tayendanega, from Aguzasne, from there. We all uh, got together and we had a jamboree. We made speeches and so on. We already said in 1959, that, and they went ahead and they did build the small one, but they wanted a big one and they wanted to build it right over to uh, where the cemetery was. And we said no, and we had a, a big, uh, so we took a stand at that time. So they knew that they would have a problem right from 1959, they, they knew that. But th now this um, conflict basically lasted for uh, all, you know, almost a year. And I know runners from Ganazadage came down to Anadaga uh, at, uh, at Grand Councils to, to talk about the circumstance. Um, and I don't know if you could get into that a little bit, um, but also, uh, again, the way this thing, you know, the standoff basically came to an end when the SQ um, launched their violent attack. Well, there were a lot of things going on, and there were a lot of different parties that were going to Onondaga and going to the other communities. This was going on for quite a while, yes. However, we all didn't know what everybody was doing. We just knew that there was a, a big issue and something had happened in uh, Agazosne. There was that, that had been taken over, and uh, there were about a thousand uh, uh, policemen from New York State in there. And so that, but the only place where it was kind of relatively quiet was here in Ganawagi. So things were already going on, and things were already happening to us. And uh, we were already being threatened. And uh, so this uh, kind of blew up suddenly. And uh, then everything came down over in Ganazadage. And then we all had to, you know, everybody had to rush over to Ganazadage to stand with them. And one of those people who rushed to Ganazadage is my friend, Loran Thompson. 
Is this Mr. John Kane? <laughs> is this Gunnar Zaraga? Lorraine, who I know as Gunnar Zaraga, has always been a big part of the Longhouse community in Akwasasti and Ngalawage. He has served on council and is well-respected throughout Haudenosaunee or Haudenosaunee lands. Now, Lorraine, Kenneth Deer from the Mohawk Nation office called upon you, but you are from Akwasasni, and from a geographical standpoint, that's quite a ways from Gunasadage. So how did you get involved? Well, I was in Ganawaga at the time. I was living in Ganawaga, and I was um, maybe 100 feet from the what was the nation office at that time in old Ganawaga. And the morning they went into Gunasadage, I had got a phone call from the nation office who happened to be Kenneth Deere. And he tells me, he says, uh, you have your TV on? I says, no. He says, turn it on and put it on the news channel. He says, watch the news and come on over here as soon as you see it. Quebec riot police are now moving in on a roadblock set up by Mohawk Indians in Oka, Quebec. Our reporter, Laurent Levin, has managed to reach the Mohawk barricade, and he's joining us where just moments ago, shots were fired, and he spoke with Barbara Smith. Laurent, the, the support for, for this particular uh, roadblock at Oka, what is happening there? You can hear firing. I'm not sure if it's weapons or if it's... Uh, yes, it is. They're firing at us. Uh, I can see, I'm trying to get behind a tree, actually, and the tear dance is starting to come. But as you can hear, there's uh, semi-automatic weapon fire. And now, is this police firing or Mohawk firing? It appears to be. I can't tell for sure where it's coming from, but it appears to be coming from the police lines, yes. They're not firing at people, but they're firing on the ground and move back because the When I watched it, I walked over, and Kenneth and the nation office people talk to me and so what do you think and so on and so forth and they said well what we're going to do is put a team together uh, to go there and to try to resolve the issue peacefully so they says okay we want you to go on that committee and your job would be to resolve, help resolve this issue peacefully. I says, okay. So they put us on the bus and we went there. And they came to Akwazaste. Gunasadaga came to Akwazaste asking for help. And I was not totally aware at that time that they had done that. But apparently, uh, Francis Boots, the war chief at the time here in Akwazasne, got a few men and they went up there. And they had been there about a week or so on that morning that the police came in. They were all there, okay? They were all there in the pines, burning tobacco in the morning doing the sunrise ceremony when the police came in the way they did, shooting and uh, uh, gas, gassing everybody and so on. Well, the men that were already there, once the shots went off, they didn't waste any time in 
in opening fire back at the SQ. A 20-minute gun battle ensued. Dozens of rounds of ammunition were shot off, and then the inevitable, someone was hit. A police officer took a bullet in the face, which proved fatal. That seemed to turn the tide. The police, who had been advancing until then, turned tail and fled, leaving six of their vehicles behind. And at that moment, everybody on the SQ side just turned around and ran back out of the woods and left their vehicles and everything behind. They all ran down the hill. And that's when the men started up the, the payloader and pushed their vehicles across the road to keep them from coming back up the road. It was it was the uh, SQ that did all of this. Okay, they they tried their best to aggravate the situation uh, because they were going to push their way through, but they got pushed back and stopped. And during that process, information was coming out to the public because, and it was coming out live because the the um, reporters were also stuck inside. They were not allowed to leave and no reporters were allowed to come in. So they had a direct information, a direct line to what was actually happening. And that went right out to uh, international news, national and international news. News Watch with Dennis Trudeau. Hello, Mohawk versus police with their guns aimed at each other and one Quebec police force officer dead. That's the situation tonight at two native communities in the Montreal area. In Oka, the Mohawk sees several police... So the whole world saw what actually happened on that morning, how Benasadaga was attacked and they de defended themselves. So everything was proper in the way they defended themselves on the threat that was coming at them. They tried to blame the warriors for doing it, but it was never, it never went further than that. They couldn't prove uh, anything. Corporal Marcel Lemay was rushed to Saint-Eustache Hospital at around 9.15. When he arrived, he was suffering from cardiac arrest. Hospital officials tried to resuscitate him, but at 10.15, some 45 minutes later, he died. Lemay was a member of the provincial police SWAT team. He was one of the officers sent to Oka to dismantle the Mohawk barricade. Mohawks say they didn't shoot him during the gun battle. It was an accident. There was no one at fault. The policeman apparently climbed up a tree, slipped, fell, shot himself right there. He was transported to Saint-Eustache Hospital. The Quebec police force refused to confirm or deny the Mohawks' claim. They simply said they're investigating the mess. Anyway, we sat down. We all sat down. Everything was going good, talking. Everybody's agreeing. And we came, we came to the point where now the dialogue is going to go between us to do the fine-tuning. The agreements are going to be signed. And then all of a sudden, at the end of the table, 
right where I was standing, there was an empty seat, which I wasn't aware that the men had decided that a warrior that was there was going to sit there. Well, he went through the whole process and that seat was empty. But when it came towards the end, all of a sudden he sat down there and it changed the whole uh, scene that was going on because he's in camel. He's got a camel hat on. He's got a, a handkerchief over his face, um, which was what was happening at the time. All of the men had hanker, uh, their face covered. Now, he sat down there, which discredited the whole thing. All of that stuff that took place from there on, because that one person sat there, he he ruined the peaceful political process that was taking place. No, and but why was that? A military. Why was uh, that? Why was that? Because because the other side was not made aware. Neither side was made aware that that the warriors were going to to be involved politically in this whole process it was represent political representatives from both sides mm. is what it started out as so to the Amer to the canadian politicians representatives because that happened uh everything just fell apart and the, when they left that's when the sq and the rcmp Start moving in to Gunasadaga. Start moving in. Gunasadaga held their own because those reporters were there to report exactly what was happening every day. The helicopters, uh, the um, SQ, how they were agitating everybody. Uh, people that were living there in Gunasadaga were being uh, agitated. Uh, right there at the roadblocks and a whole lot of things were going on by the SQ and Oka mayor was not going to get what he wanted. So when the Oka mayor and the Quebec government, uh, start moving, it was them that made all of the issues uh, more difficult. They called the uh, military in. And what the heck they called them. Um, uh, they got one, what is it, brigade, I think they called it in uh, Quebec. And they surrounded Gunasadaga and they start moving in. They start closing us off um, slowly and slowly. And this was all on. Uh, uh, on uh, world news at that time, okay? It was really uh, getting out there. Instead of moving on the Oka barricades by road, the army chose the terrain it likes best, the forest, moving in from behind, coming in the back way. When they rolled, it was swift. The warriors met them on a dirt road deep inside the Indian territory. Are we gonna start swinging or what? 
they were flying over with helicopters constantly. Um, they had their um, military vehicles parked uh, all the way around the um, encampment, and they were uh, um, taking turns starting their engines at nighttime so that the people inside would not be able to sleep and they would be too tired to negotiate. Didn't, weren't there multiple times where, you know, the Canadian officials walked away from the table? Didn't, and were you involved in some of the other um, subsequent negotiations? No. Um, what actually happened there during the process, the military was closing in. What happened is uh, our lines and the Onondaga Grand Council got together with Oswego, Six Nations, and they had meetings with uh, Department of Indian Affairs Canada and the Canadian government, okay? And their resolve to that issue was for Canada to put up a an office, an embassy for the Iroquois Confederacy in Ottawa at their expense. And they would give the okay for the Canadian Army to go and get rid of the warriors one and, once and for all. That's what their deal was. Because they wanted to get rid of the warriors at that time, if you remember. Because they were enforcing our rights and keeping our people safe and all of that stuff. So as things closed, closed, a negotiating team from our side sprung up in Dorval. Okay. Um, they start negotiating with the military in charge. Then they came up with an idea. The military set up two tents. And they were going to come out in a certain manner and go through a certain process. Okay. And when, when we got the message that we were okay, there's an agreement in place, come on out. So everybody was all happy, it's gonna be all over now and so on. So they had a meeting inside, how are we gonna dress? Are we gonna dress like this or are we gonna civilian? So, well, I chose civilian. I says, listen, we don't know what we're going into here. I says, wear civilian clothes, they won't recognize who you are or so on and so forth and they won't come after you. So, Loren, you were you were in the treatment well, center. Decision, you were you were in the treatment center this whole time with with the uh, the folks that were holed up. Then, yes, yes, the whole time I was in in the treatment. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and the decision was made to each his own. Wear what you like. Okay, so that's when we got the phone call. So from Dorval, they asked for me. I went up there, and, and they called a phone 
that belonged to one of the photographers that was locked in the Sadaka. When I got there at the tarp, which is the only place that you could get a signal, okay? So I talked to him and I talked to Mike Myers. And Mike Myers said, don't listen to what's going on. It's a double cross. It's a double cross. Don't do it. So I says, okay. I hung up. I turned around and now they're, they're marching down. They're all singing. And I told one of the men, I said, pick up all of those um, uh, gurneys that are laying around. I said, pick them up and let's let's go tell them we can't go out. That that would be a surrender. They wanted us to go out with our hands behind our head, go through the first tent. They would frisk us down, go through the second tent, uh, get processed, and then taken to a military uh, jail or whatever. We walked out to them and we stopped them. Everything stopped. I, th- I explained everything to them. I told them, I says, we got to go out this way, through the woods. I says, we are all leaving, but we can't go out the way they want us to because that would be a surrender. So we got to go through the woods. And after I said that, everything was just quiet. And then all of a sudden, the whole line turned and went through the woods. So as we see... As the conflict was coming to an end, there was much confusion and uncertainty. On top of that, Gontaneta's daughters showed up in this chaotic scenario. And then my two daughters showed up. They came by boat. They showed up. And uh, I told them they had to leave. They had to go back. It's too dangerous here. So um, I was looking for them. I couldn't find them. And we were trying to get people out. Anyway, we couldn't find them. And they were hiding. They wanted to stay with their mom. Anyway, I was pretty angry. But anyway, so we had to take care of them. We had other children there, too. And uh, we had to look after them. It was very, very dangerous time. Yes, it was. How old were your daughters? Constantly. Well, my uh, youngest daughter was four. And uh, my other daughter was 14. Now, at this point, Loran knows that the planned exit is a double cross. So both Loran and Gothanetta, with her daughters, change course. They use gurneys that are lying there to cross the barbed wire to leave through the woods. We suddenly made a right turn and headed right for where there was a lot of um, um, uh, a lot of people. Our people were there, and there were a lot of um, uh, press, media. They were all there, and we just put those. Uh, stretchers over the fence and we just started running over grabbing everybody as people were coming through I was standing there and one woman comes through with a baby so I helped across the gurney and I says whatever you do do not run don't run I says go to the second driveway through the yards and walk meanwhile just behind us the military had come out from the, uh, whatever they call where they assembled. That's, uh, they were all coming from there anyways. And they start stopping the, the ones that had their fatigues on. They start fighting with them. 
And uh, this one woman seen me wrestling with one military guy who was trying to stop me from moving. Well, anyways, when she saw that, she come running over there. She grabbed that guy right off of me and threw him in the back. And she says, you, get out of here. Leave right now. And there was a guy from Aquisussin that heard that. And he ran after his car, which was parked pretty darn close to where the, the ruckus was going on at that time with the military. So he ran after that. And by the time I turned around and started to leave, that military guy was right there again. And we were at it again. And that woman again grabbed him and threw him. Holy man, I don't know where she got her strength from, but she grabbed him by the flak jacket, swung him around, and pushed him out of the way. And she told me again, get the hell out of here. She says, go on. So I start walking up to the sidewalk. As I turned, that person that was beside us had gotten his car, and he was riding right there. And um, we jumped in, and when we left, a bunch of little things happened, but I made it home about an hour, 10, 15 minutes. I was home, but I didn't stay here at home. I stayed at another place because now they were looking for me. So at this point, while Loran has escaped, Gantoneta and her daughters are with the group that are being attacked by the soldiers. The soldiers were, were pretty angry. They came running around from the other end and they grabbed lasagna and started beating him up and then me and somebody else we jumped on the soldiers tried to get them off but they were really beating him up badly and then my daughter was uh, leading the kids in and uh, she was supposed to uh, get them to uh, where the crowd of our people were and uh, they stopped her and that's when they they, uh, they uh, stabbed her in the chest you know, right over the heart they just missed her heart and then I went in and I started screaming and screaming and said, that's my daughter, that's my daughter. And she was holding on to my other daughter, my four-year-old. And then the, the soldier put the, put the knife right in my chest and he says, back off, lady. Back off. Well, I, so I backed off. And then I think somebody else grabbed my two girls, pulled them out. And then I grabbed them. And uh, so that's when that happened. But at that moment, there was a lot of fighting going on, a lot of it. So it was hard to know what was going on. We were all just trying to grab our kids, trying to grab, trying to get ourselves over to our own people. And we ended up being put in these buses. They were military buses. And um, just before I got in, I was holding on to my little girl and, uh, and, we were looking after my daughter. We didn't know how badly she had been hurt. So we all got on that bus and we were taken to a military camp. And we were left in the bus in the middle of the tarmac. And my daughter, then we saw how badly my daughter had been hurt. She was bleeding everywhere and, and nobody, we couldn't get any medical help for her. And they wouldn't let us go to the bathroom. And it, the, that bus was full of the women and, and the babies and the children. And we were trying to get some help for us, and nobody would give us any help. And then finally, some uh, some lawyers showed up, and they said, we're going to help you. 
so then uh, so they allowed us to go to the bathroom and then they and then they took us and then and then he saw what happened to my daughter and he said well we have to get her out of here and we did get her out pretty tricky we were very tricky but we got her out she was they had us in this uh, trailer and they were filling forms out and she was there and we couldn't get any help for her and this lawyer says when i tell you bring her out i'll have a car here and this was inside the, the, the inside the um uh, you know the, the the compound so anyway he ran he opened the door he said get in and he told him whatever you do just drive right through and don't stop so he drove and he went right through the crowd there must have been 500 people there at the gate of the um, of the compound he got her out of there and brought her back to Kahnawake and took her immediately to to the hospital so you were you were so essentially you were able to break your daughter and this is Monique Yes. You were able to break your daughter out from uh, from from their custody uh, to to so you could make sure that she got the medical attention. They didn't provide it. You well, basically had to bust her well, out of their custody. Yes. Yes, I did. So this and, uh, all, all this was happening. This was under um, the SQ's custody or the military's custody. When we were in uh, the uh, military at Farnham, it was the SQ that was that was uh, interrogating us. They took us uh, each by ourselves, two of them, and uh, they would start interrogating us. And everybody, nobody said anything. We just said, I have no comment. That's it. No comment. No comment. No comment. And they got very angry at us. And then they wouldn't let us sleep. We were in these uh, uh, barracks, and they were banging on the floor. If, we, if our eyes just closed, they, would, they did everything they could to keep us awake. And um, then they would um, take us uh, uh, one at a time, and they would take us in to be uh, to be um, interrogated. Well, Dennis, I want to thank you so much for giving me giving me so much of your time. So I want to thank you. Um, not a, well, I want to thank you for for the work you did in 1990, but uh, also for giving me your time today. I, I greatly appreciate it. Well, you know it's. I'm glad to do it. I really am. Just to give an update on Gontanetta's daughters, 14-year-old Wanique would survive her injuries and go on to earn a gold medal in the 1999 Pan American Games in water polo. She would be only the second woman from Gonawage to compete in the Olympics. Four-year-old Gonyadio would go on to become a very successful actress, earning a Gemini Award nomination. If you'd like to learn more about Gontanetta, Gunya Dio hosts a popular podcast with her mother called Coffee With My Ma. Let me get back to Loran for some final thoughts looking back from all these years later. How, how would you frame the legacy of Gunazadage, Oka, uh, our resistance? You know, how, how, would you, how would you characterize the aftermath and the legacy of that conflict? It it uh, reinitiated the subconscious of a lot of our people, both U.S. and Canada, and other areas of the world. Indigenous people all over 
were re-energized by what they seen and heard in Gunasadaka. What we're seeing right now uh, throughout Canada and uh, on the pipeline issue, they're trying to uh, keep the unity in place that had developed during that time. To use the media and the internet uh, to educate the people out there on what's going on, which is really important. Today, many of the people who are involved in um, the conflicts, the defense or the resistance to Canadian law, U.S. law, development, uh, you know, go- governance, they're, they're very young. You know, the, some, of these, some of these people weren't even born during uh, in 1990, and and many of them were were babies or children. So, is it your sense that that all of the people who are who are now in, involved in in many of these conflicts are still recalling you know, so much of what was um, represented by this conflict in Ganazadage and and Oka? Yes, it keeps coming up. Uh, you hear. In, in a lot of people, a lot of young people that are on the lines today, uh, we don't want another OCA. Uh, we, don't, we don't want a, a military uh, situation again. We've got to be careful in what we say and do, but we have to defend. We have to defend ourselves intelligently. I guess the question is, would the resistance we see today, do you think that it would exist in the same way had that resistance not occurred uh, in 1990? Uh, that's hard to say because you already had, uh, uh, was it San Francisco? Mm. Uh, Al- Alcatraz and... Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. You've already had Alcatraz, uh, uh, wounded knee. Uh, you've already had Ganyonga. You already had the Civil War, Nakuzasne. Um, all of these political things were happening all over, all over the time. Regardless if you're on one side or the other, you were hearing who and what we are as a people and what our responsibilities are as a people. And we often hear we're treaty people. Hmm. We made treaties with the newcomers to this land. We didn't get our rights from a treaty. We gave rights to who we made the treaty with. Our rights have always been here. I think I think people are coming around and starting to realize that. Loren, uh, talk about the golf course and and its expansion plans. <laughs> well, right now, right now they're starting it again, okay? But it's a developer this time, uh, an apartment developer. Watch wants to go to Gunasadag in the same area uh, that is owned by Gunasadag people. Oka wants to give the developer an okay to put up 
apartment houses or something to that effect. Even though the the golf course never expanded, there still seems to be some designs on trying to build luxury condos or some other form of development on that. Yeah, land. because because they see all of this land, uh, a, a pine. It's all pines. They see all of that as useless, but our people see it as oxygen. That's that's their oxygen. Thank you for taking this journey with us. As always, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Let's Talk Native. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Talk Native. You can also follow us on Instagram at Let's Talk Native TV. And of course, you can join our group page on Facebook. This is John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Yahweh. They're, they're crazy. I, I think, I think, because because of a few people that were that initiated this whole thing, I mean I mean the non-Indians that that initiated this project of a golf course and then and then trying to take the land away because it, it's Mohawk land, it's our land. There's a little bit left. They're sucking the marrow out of our bones. That's is, that's obviously what they they all want. They want everything. What do you think of the uh, provincial police's attempt this morning to take this barricade? Foolish. Foolish, because they're ready to kill us.